man. Uh, if you have a Bible, here we go. Uh, please open it up to John 14. We're going to be in verses 1 through 14 of John 14. You can find that on page 586 if you grabbed one of the Bibles that are on the tables when you walked in here uh, this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, I just want to encourage you to, to take that home with you. Or, or maybe you don't have a Bible and you didn't see that they were out there. I want you to take one with you as you leave here today and, and just take that home and read it and dive into it. Um, before we go into our time in God's Word, though, um, I just want to uh, share with you something that has br- been brought to my attention. It's really been on my heart, and I think it's fitting time to talk about it leading into the women's retreat. But um, uh, I've been aware, and uh, it's become more apparent, I guess, recently through conversations I've had with different people, that God is, is giving a growing desire uh, within younger women within our church um, just to have somebody who's further along in life than them. Uh, to come alongside of them and just pour their life out into them. And whether that's a discipling relationship or mentoring relationship or just someone who's going to be a godly influence in their life. And so um, that's, I just want to affirm, uh, really, uh, that's a really good desire uh, that, that many uh, younger women in our church have. And um, I, th- I think that's an amazing thing that God is, is doing. Um, and uh, I want to do the best that I can, really, as a pastor to cultivate that and to see that happen um, it's really my dream that uh, we would be a church, although we're a very young church, uh, it's our dream to be a church that has uh, multi-generations just pouring out their lives out into the lives of other people and seeing other people developed and growing and becoming more like Jesus and helping others do the same. Um, and as I've been thinking about this, uh, my struggle is that what I'm pu- putting out there, I guess, to you this morning is something I recognize I can't really program. Uh, if I did that, it'd be really weird, okay? If I just had like a sign-up sheet and you just, you know, met with a random person. And so uh, that's really uh, challenging. Um, and so I guess what I, what I wanted to do this morning as I've been praying about this is just to, to put that out there, um, that a recognition that there are a lot of women in this church who, who have this desire for someone to come alongside of them and just be their friend or mentor or something. And, and that person doesn't necessarily have to have it all together, uh, really, because we all are learning as we follow Jesus. But I, I just assume that if God's giving this desire to younger women within our church, I just assume that God is giving a desire to older women in our church uh, who are feeling like they maybe they don't feel like they have a place right now in the life of our community, or they're feeling like, I don't know how I'm supposed to be spending my life and my time. And um, I just want to say to you, maybe this is what God's asking you to do, um, just to step up in, in a very natural way and to grab some ladies and bring them around your life and uh, just to point them to Jesus as other people are pointing you to Jesus. And I don't really think this has to be overly complicated either. Um, And and like I said, you don't have to have it all figured out. Um, uh, An incredible example of this happened yesterday, and I got permission uh, to share about a girl in our church named Bariah Cook. Bariah and her family, Jeremy is her dad, who's just up here. They moved here last August. And Bariah is a middle school girl. Uh, She's amazing. I want to be like Bariah. I really do. Uh, Bariah doesn't know this, but now she does. Um, uh, I want to be like Bariah when I grew up. Because Bariah yesterday just had all these young girls to her house, and she planned a, like, princess Bible study for all these girls. So my six-year-old daughter, and I'm, I mean, there's kids their age, like, 11 to 2 or something, from my knowledge. I don't know. I wasn't there. I wasn't allowed. I wasn't a little girl. Um, <laughs> But um, my wife sent me photos and little videos, and it was uh, not only adorable, it was powerful. Uh, it was powerful to see this middle school girl just saying, 
uh, somebody at one point in her life poured into her and modeled this. And so she just said, I'm going to have people over to my house and do this for people. And I, I give that as an example to you to show you that you don't have to like be an expert and you really don't have to um, have everything together. You just have to be willing. And, and I, I think that's a powerful uh, uh, picture as well because we see that God plants seeds in our lives and when those seeds are planted, when someone pours into your life, uh, that will cause you at some point to want to turn around and pour out your life to somebody else. That's how this following Jesus thing actually works. And so all this to say, I think this is an appropriate conversation, especially leading into the women's retreat this weekend. I think maybe some good conversations could be had at that event. Um, but I just want to encourage you, if you're an older lady in this church, an older, I mean, that could be like 25, honestly, uh, for our demographic, or it could be, you know, 105. I don't know. Maybe I haven't met you yet, but if you're 105, I'm really glad you're here. Um, we all are. I'm sure you're glad you're here, too. Um, and, uh, but no matter what, no, uh, sorry, no matter how old you are, okay, 25 to 105, okay? Um, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Um, when you just talk in front of people, weird stuff comes out. Um, but I just want to say, no matter where you're at, and you have a desire that you're like, yes, I, I think maybe that's what God's called me to do, I just want to encourage you to come and talk to me today. And again, I can't program that, but I'd like to figure out what I can do to help. And uh, talk to Victoria, um, talk to other women in this church, uh, attend the women's retreat this weekend, and just see what God does. And it's really my dream that we would see just women across the life of our church just pouring their lives into each other's lives, and I think just beautiful um, Jesus' kingdom coming to earth stuff is going to happen through that. So uh, I just want to encourage you in that way before we begin, okay? So let me just quickly pray uh, for the women in our church, and then I'll dive in, okay? Uh, Father, I thank you for what you're doing in the hearts of people in our church, God, that you always go before us, and you begin to place things in our hearts, God, that we didn't really put there, and but they're really good things. And so, God, I just pray that you would... Um, raise up women who would just carve out a little bit of their life and invite other people into it. God, I pray that we would see uh, women flourishing and thriving and growing in their Christ-likeness in our church and helping one another do that. And so God, I pray that you pour out your spirit in such a special way that we'd see more of this uh, just happening uh, across the map here, not only in our church, God, but in every church, really in Corvallis, God. We want to see this multi-generational uh, discipleship happening, pointing one another towards you, Lord Jesus. And so um, I pray that you would um, answer these prayers, God, um, these desires that you've given to people. They're good desires, and I pray uh, that you would fulfill them. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so John 14 is where we're at this morning. Um, John 14. In the first sentence of John 14, reads like this. It's from the mouth of Jesus. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. He looks out at his followers and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let your heart this morning be troubled. So I think it's appropriate just to ask you, I believe in the power of God's word, as you walk in here this morning, is your heart troubled? Is your heart in a troubled spot? I mean, you may not use that word. You might walk around going, uh, oh, my heart is so troubled, you know, or I am a troubled person. That might sound very um, sophisticated or like 19th century to you or something. I mean, maybe you would insert a different word. Maybe you would insert the word like worried or stressed or torn up inside. Literally, the word in Greek means disturbed. 
Uh, the question, though, I think remains the same. Uh, the disciples here in this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, they're troubled because they are uncertain about their future. That's why they're troubled. Jesus is their uh, security blanket in life, if you will. He's their fearless leader, and he's leaving them. I just kind of wonder, maybe, have you ever been in a troubled spot like that? Maybe you're not in there this morning, um, but you probably have been there before. Or eventually, you will get into a spot like this where you're really uncertain about your future, about what might happen to you in life. Whether, whether your security blanket, whatever it is, it might be removed, and then all of a sudden, your spirit and your heart is just in a really troubled place. I mean, maybe your security blanket, I don't know, maybe it's, um, maybe it's somebody you love, and they all of a sudden become absent from your life, you know, they're ripped away from you. Or maybe it's um, some financial security that you've had and you're, you've lost. Or maybe it's a big life change, changes really happen in your life. Maybe it's a career change, you know, or, or maybe you've moved to a new city, maybe you're part of a new church, you know, and, and things are just different, Right? And your heart's in in an interesting spot. I just want to ask you, is your heart troubled this morning? I want to ask you that because this is where our passage begins. And Jesus addresses his followers whose hearts are in a troubled spot. And it's Jesus, though. This is the interesting thing. It's Jesus who's heading to the agony of the cross. And it's actually Jesus who, just before this chapter, we are told is deeply troubled in his spirit. We see that in chapter 13, verse 21, and we see it said again in chapter 12, verse 27, that Jesus is troubled in his heart. Yet on this night of nights, when of all times, it would have been most appropriate for Jesus' followers, his closest disciples, to be the ones lending him the emotional and spiritual support. He is the one, in his greatest time of need, who's turning around and he's giving the comfort. He's offering the instruction. He's the one that's giving. And isn't that, I just want to say that for just a second. Isn't, don't you just love Jesus? I mean, he's so unlike anybody else. He's in his moment of need, and yet he's the one thinking about somebody else. So what's the cure for their troubled hearts? Well, Jesus doesn't say to them, let not your hearts be troubled because I will always make it possible for you in life to escape and elude just like difficult days that lie ahead. Or he doesn't say to them, don't be troubled because if you can just simply muster up enough faith in life, you will be elevated above the ordinary struggles that other people just face every day of their life. Or he doesn't say, don't let your heart be troubled because you're going to be spared of physical affliction and pain. Or don't let your heart be troubled because you will... Be spared of financial stress in your life, or you'll be spared from the disdain of your coworkers, or that you will experience triumph in every arena of your life. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. That's not what he said. And so regardless of what caused or leads to a troubled heart this morning, and regardless of whether you live in the first century or the 21st century, how does somebody overcome a troubled heart? How do you overcome a troubled soul, a wounded spirit? Well, the answer Jesus gives is really straight to the point. He says, it's me. The cure for your troubled heart is Jesus. Let's look closely at how he makes this really clear to us this morning. If it sounds overly simplistic and almost trite, uh, just bear with me. uh, Because what Jesus unpacks is, is amazing. And he's declaring this incredible truth to you this morning that can cure your troubled heart. And he says in verses two through six, this truth that you must believe in him, that he is the way. And in verse 7 through 11, you see that Jesus declares this truth, that he is the truth. 
And in 12 through 14, you see that Jesus is the life. He's the life. And so first, Jesus is the way. In verses 2 through 6, we begin to see this. Read with me. So Jesus says, let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus, uh, he starts talking about houses and rooms, okay? Uh, But not just any. He's talking about his father's house and how he's going to go and prepare a place for his followers. And then he's going to return and he's going to bring them to be with him in his father's house. So what in the world is going on here? Well, the simplest explanation is that when Jesus says, my father's house, he is referring to heaven, okay? And he says, in heaven are many rooms, many dwelling places. If you're reading King James, which maybe some of you are this morning, I'm not sure, uh, it's really poorly translated mansions. And that's not at all what this is getting at. It's, it's just a place where you are dwelling with God and Jesus is preparing this place for you. See, Jesus' point is not that Jesus is bringing his followers to this sweet heavenly house someday, and they're like, awesome, we're going to get an upgrade, you know, in life. You know, this house that Jesus is using, it's a, it's a word picture, it's a symbol, it's a metaphor. And the point is that where Jesus is promising to bring these troubled followers is to be with God. The point isn't the house. The point is that it's the Father's house. The emphasis is on the owner of the house. He's there. That's where he lives, See, don't miss the point of the metaphor. Jesus is leaving, and he's preparing a dwelling place for his followers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he's, de- he's preparing a dwelling place for you to be with God. But it's not, the, it's not the place that makes it so great. It's the person in that place that makes it so great. Um, I, I love Southern California. And during the winter months, yes, definitely. Uh, we all do, don't we? But um, a lot of Southern California is, I'm just... Sorry if you're from there. It's not a beautiful place. I mean, don't let, uh, don't be deceived by all the photos. You always see the sunsets and the palm trees and stuff. And yes, those are there. But it's really, um, as Alicia Keys says, a concrete jungle. You know, it's not really uh, all, you know, cracked up to be how great it looks sometimes in the pictures. But I still, I love SoCal. And it is beautiful in so many ways. But the reason why I love Southern California is because some of my favorite people on the planet, uh, I met there when I lived there for four years. And uh, many of those people have left, but there's two people in particular that live there that are very near and dear to me and my wife's heart. It's, it's, it was my best friend in college. He was the best man at my wedding. And his wife, who was my wife's best friend in college and maid of honor in her wedding, and they still live down there. And so when I think of Southern California and wanting to visit, yes, I think of Sunshine or Disneyland or the beaches or whatever, but really... What makes Southern California so wonderful to me is the fact that there's these two names that live down there, Tim and Brittany, and their last name, Walker, right? These people that live down there are the reason what makes, you know, SoCal so wonderful and so compelling. It's not the place, it's the people. And if those people are removed from Southern California, the umph is gone. 
Right? It's just, maybe you know what this is like. You know, maybe there's a town that you would never want to be in or you never really have a desire to go to, but it's the people that make it that great. This is the point of Jesus. I think many of us can look to Jesus in our lives, if we're being honest, and we want to follow him, and we, we end up crying out for him to save us. But the reason, if we're being honest, that we want him to save us is because we're simply afraid of what might happen to us after we die. And so Jesus is merely a means of our own self-preservation in life. But, that, but that's not the emphasis here in this passage. It's not part of what brings peace to their troubled hearts. It's not that their lives are going to be preserved. He doesn't say, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. You're going to be in heaven. You're going to be in an awesome place. You know, that's not what he, he says. It's not that they will live in a sweet place. It's that they will get God. Right? That, that's the vision. This is part of the peace for the troubled soul that Jesus offers. He offers it to them and he offers it to you. So, so how will you get to be with God forever? How is this even possible? Right? Like how will you get there? Well, Jesus tells his disciples that they know the way. He says, you know the way. And they seem to disagree with Jesus. And you see this in verse 5 with Thomas. And I love Thomas. I really, I love Thomas. He, he's often shown, especially in John's gospel, to be a very like factual and literal man who struggles with doubt quite a bit. And I think many of us can really resonate with somebody uh, like Thomas. And here, he's interpreted Jesus' words in the most natural, literal way. He basically says to Jesus, if we don't know the destination, Jesus, then how can we know the route? You know? And Jesus doesn't misunderstand where they're at, I don't think. I don't think Jesus says, oh, you know the way, and they're like, no, we don't. And he's like, oh, weird, okay, I thought you did. No, that's not what he says. Like, he, he knew that they knew, they just didn't realize that they knew. That's what's happening. See, the destination is God. Well, what's the route? Jesus continues in verse 6, how do we get to God? What's, what's the path? Well, it's through Jesus and only through Jesus. He is the way. He doesn't say that he is one of many ways, but that he is the way. See, when Jesus says that the way to the Father comes through me, what does that practically mean? I mean, like, what does that really mean, that he is the way? Like, like how do we do that? Like, how do we experience Jesus as the way? Well, I think the Gospel of John really helps us understand that, because everywhere in John, we are told over and over and over and over again that you must believe in Jesus, that you must trust in him alone, that the way to God is not through our own effort, it's not through our own good deeds, but the way to God is through Jesus. We must look to his work on the cross as our only hope. I just want to throw up a couple examples for you on the screen here in the Gospel of John. Just let this flood over you. Classic verse, right? John 3.16. Okay, but don't miss how awesome this is. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned in John 3.18, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And you see in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And then John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 7, 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in John 11, just to give you one last one here, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So, so what does it mean to come to the Father 
through Jesus, the Son, through, through the way, right? Well, it means that you believe Jesus is who he says he is and that what he will do on the cross for sinful and broken humanity is the only hope that we have for forgiveness, for acceptance, for security of being with God forever. He's the only way. And I recognize when I say that how um, countercultural that statement is in our day and age. I mean, based on our modern ideologies and beliefs that are tossed around, things that we swim in, uh, that, that is not a popular thing to say, that Jesus is the way. Um, we believe a lot of times, you know, just like, I mean, maybe you're in this room and you believe that, that Jesus is not just the way, he's maybe one of many ways or something like that. Our, 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 our modern day ideologies paint for us this, this picture, or this idea that there are many pathways to God, and we, we end up asking the question, well, why is there only one way? That doesn't even sound logical. Like, why would there only be one way? And I, and I think, again, there's many people in our city, and there's some of you here this morning who would say, well, won't other religions do the same exact thing? Won't they all just end up getting me to God? I mean, aren't we all just sort of climbing the same mountain? We just are getting there by a different road. Or, or can't we all arrive at the same destination? But maybe some of you are going to get there by car and some by bus, you know, and some by foot and some by helicopter or something, you know. And you might ask then, why in the world? I don't get it. Why are Christians so held up on the fact that there's only one way? I don't get it. Okay. Well, the simple answer to that question. The simple pushback, I think, that has most comforted me or at least been instructful to me over the years is the fact that we, guys, we don't even deserve any pathway to God at all, much less one. I mean, I mean the fact that God has provided a way through his son, guys, that's a miracle of divine mercy. I mean, the fact is that that you feel this way, you sense this, you get this sense when you read Scripture. The question is not, is not why aren't there multiple ways. Instead, when you read Scripture and you really sit under what God says to us in Scripture, we see how undeserving we are of even God giving us one way. We ask, why would God even make a way? That's the question we begin to ask when we sit in Scripture long enough. But I would also say for every belief that we hold, you know, whether you're here this morning and you, are, you identify as a Muslim or a Buddhist or an agnostic or an atheist or even a pluralist, I, I would say to you this, we all look to some authority. We all look to some reason to believe what we believe. You don't just conjure up and manufacture these things in your own life. You look to something as an authority to believe what you believe. And as Christians, we believe deep inside of our bones that Jesus is the best authority. He is the way. Why? Because he rose from the dead. And I haven't found anybody else who's done that. He performed countless miracles that were, were told about that other people didn't do, and he even backed up his extremely high standards of teaching with his own actions. But then more mind-boggling than anything, Jesus willingly died for those that hated him in order that they might have hope in life. You see, this is what sets Jesus apart, I think, from anything else that you will find in this world. It's, it's this grace. It's grace because we see that Jesus came. That's what he's saying here. I came to bring you to God. Do you notice this? Jesus isn't pointing you to the way. 
He's not describing to you how to get there. He doesn't even show you the way. He doesn't say, hey, follow me. I'll carve out, I'll blaze the trail. You can, you got to follow me, right? This way, he, he says that he is the way. I'll put it to you this way. If you were to come over to my house and we're hanging out, you know, and, uh, and you said, hey, I got to go to the bathroom. And I said, oh, the bathroom is upstairs. And uh, you were to say, you know, uh, how do you get uh, upstairs? You know, where are the stairs at? I could say the stairs are right over there. And I could point you to the stairs. Or I could say, oh, just follow me. Follow me up the stairs and I'll, I'll guide you up the stairs and I'll walk you to the bathroom and I'll say, here's the bathroom or something, right? But, but, the, but we often look at some passages like this and we think that's what Jesus is saying. We think he's saying, there's the stairs or here, uh, follow me up the stairs. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's showing you that he is the staircase. He's saying, I am the staircase. That's what he's saying to you. See, without the staircase in my house, and I were to say it's upstairs, hey, good luck, right? Some of you would love that challenge, probably. You would love to try to figure out, how do I get to the second floor without stairs, okay? And you're going to do some weird thing on YouTube or something, okay? But, uh, but many of you, you would find it very challenging to get upstairs. And Jesus isn't even saying to you that, it's, that getting to heaven apart from him is challenging. He's saying it's impossible, See, Jesus isn't just a good person. He's not just a great example. He's not just a wise teacher. He is himself, guys. He is the savior of the world. He is the one who speaks. And people who are in their graves hear his voice and come walking out of them. He's the only one who alone could say, no one comes to the Father except through me. So if you believe that Jesus is the way, being with God is your destination, and that is quite a cure for your troubled heart. But we also see that Jesus is the truth, this amazing truth that you can actually know God. Look with me in verse 7. What does it say? It says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Uh, maybe you're like Philip this morning. Uh, Jesus had just said in verse 7 that they had already seen the Father and that they know him, and Philip, is, he's kind of confused, okay? He basically says, you know, when did I ever see the Father? How can you say that I know him? I want to. In fact, now would be really great. It's as if he says to Jesus, I don't want to wait until you leave. I don't want to wait until you prepare a place for us for you and your father to be, you know, for us to be with you and your father forever. I want it now. My heart hurts now. I want relief from this distress and this confusion in my soul right now. Show me the father now. If you do that, it'll be enough for me. To which Jesus then makes this astonishing reply. Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the father. In other words, one of the reasons Jesus gives for why they should believe in him and not be troubled in their hearts is that the Father who has a place for each one of them in his eternal presence is already with them, right here, right now. Jesus says, in me. You see, they, they really do know the Father. 
They, they, don't, they just don't recognize it yet. They haven't fully grasped that in knowing Jesus, they have come to know God the Father. In Jesus, God has made himself known definitively, gloriously, invisibly, you guys. But these guys here, they, they hadn't grasped this about Jesus. I mean, we read in verse 10, and we see this sort of tinge of sadness, I guess, in Jesus' response. They had been with him for years now in this close relationship, and yet they were still blind, at least in part, to how amazing Jesus is. I mean, they had thought so highly about Jesus, but still Jesus is showing them, you don't think highly enough about me. You've still missed it. Because seeing Jesus is seeing God. Knowing Jesus is knowing God. We know this. Because this phrase, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, that's sort of like this linguistic way of describing this complete unity between Jesus and his Father. Okay? And again, this is, this is so challenging, I think, for us to hear based on sort of like modern ideas because Man, you walk around just for a few hours of the day and talk to anybody about faith and God, and you will get people all the time. And you might even say this. You might find yourself saying this. Well, I can't really know God. You're going to talk to people, and they're like, well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're all people who maybe started out in one vein of faith, and they eventually have moved to being agnostic. God is sort of this idea that they can't even really know. And this idea is that we all say and we all believe, yeah, you can't really know God. And that's where many of us sit and struggle. But you see, the only way that you can truthfully make the statement that you can't really know God is if God hasn't revealed himself. If God hasn't revealed himself, then yes, you can't really know God. But if God has revealed himself, then yes, you can know God. See, C.S. Lewis, this will be on the screen, simply said this once. He says, when it comes to knowing God, the initiative lies on his side. If he does not show himself, nothing you can do will enable you to find him. See, we know this when it comes to just people in our lives, just general people in our lives. I mean, have you ever known somebody, you've like hung out with them for years and you've walked with them and you're like, we're really best friends. And then they reveal something about themselves. Maybe it's their past. Maybe it's something they've done. Maybe it's a way that they think. And then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I thought I knew you, but I... I, didn't, I guess I didn't really know you. Right? Have you ever known somebody like that? This probably happens all the time, right? The, whole, the point I'm making is simple, that you can't know somebody unless they actually reveal themselves to you. And so we can walk around being fake all the time, and people might love us and accept us, but they don't really love and accept us for who we really are because we're only revealing false things about ourselves. But Jesus here, it, it's very different. Jesus is, is revealing God fully, finally, beautifully, definitively, truthfully. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not, hey, I'm, I'm kind of like the Father. I do a really good impression of him, right? I've been around him a lot in my life. And so if you've been around me, like you've kind of seen him, you know. Um, uh, I'll give this to you for an example. I love uh, In-N-Out Burger. It's like California Day, I guess. But... Um, at first, when I went to uh, California, I thought it was extremely overrated. Everyone just talks up in and out all the time. You go and you're like, yeah, it's burger and fries. But over time, right, you see the light. And you really do see, like, it is superior in every, every way, okay? And so when we moved to Oregon a little over eight years ago, no joke, moving away uh, from California and from having access to in and out 
was, was legitimately one of the top three reasons that made me sad to leave, okay? And it was hard, and I probably complained about it a little too much when I got here because people would say to me, they're like, oh, man, I'm sorry. Yeah, have you tried uh, Burgerville? Have you tried Burgerville? It's just like In-N-Out. And I was like, I haven't heard of this Burgerville, you know? And so I went to Albany. This is back when it was just in Albany or something, maybe Monmouth, you know? And um, I went and I tried Burgerville. And um, no, no people. <laughs> it's not at all the same, not even close. I mean, it's the same in the sense that it's like a burger and fries, but it is, it is not the same, okay? Um, God, uh, God is, is not like... In and out. God the Father is not like he's in and out, and Jesus is like Burgerville, being like, well, I'm kind of like him. I'm a burger and fries, you know, essentially. Okay? Jesus doesn't also say, he doesn't say this either. He doesn't say, if you've seen me, you know, you get the general idea, you know, but, but you've got to see God for himself. That's not what he says to you here. Let me show you this photo here on the screen. What is this? It's kind of pixelated, but what is that? This is the interactive portion. What? Painted hills, yes, painted hills, right? But to be more exact, more specific, this is a photo, right, of the painted hills, is it not? Okay, I've never been to the painted hills. I've always wanted to go to the painted hills. Just recently, I never even saw this. I think it was like two years ago, sadly, I saw this. I was like, is that real, right? I had never even seen the painted hills. And I've, I've met many people since then who have gone and seen the painted hills, and they've come back, and they've told me about it. And um, it's amazing. They're always like, oh, it's so beautiful, right? And they'll get out their phone and they'll show me a photo, like on their iPhone or something, of the painted hills. And they never say to me, like, they never say, see this? Yeah, you, you've basically seen it. You don't need to go. Yeah, this is basically, you know, what it is. Right? If that was the case, we could all just sit around on our computers or our phones and, like, you know, search Google or something and travel the world and be like, wow, I've seen the world. You know, like, we would all just talk in that way. No, people, when they show me the photo of the painted hills, they say it doesn't do it justice. Right? You get an idea, but you've really got to go see it for yourself. See, even this is not what Jesus is saying to you this morning about God. He's not saying this to you and to me. Jesus came, and he revealed God. But more than that, Jesus is saying, I am God-made flesh. How amazing is the grace of God? You don't have to walk around going, ah, you can't really know God. You don't have to wonder what God is like. In other words, in and out has come to town. Right? You're standing in front of the painted hills. That's what's happening here. So if you've ever wondered what, what God thinks about death, okay, this means that you look at Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. If you've ever wondered what God thinks about your sin, you look at Jesus dying in your place on a cross that you might be forgiven. If you've ever wondered how God feels about social outcasts who are shunned by everyone in society, you look at Jesus reaching out and actually touching lepers and making them clean. You look at Jesus sitting down at a meal with prostitutes and then sending them away forgiven, full of joy, and for the first time in their lives, feeling clean. If you've ever wondered how God thinks about being a religious hypocrite, you listen to Jesus denounce the Pharisees in righteous anger. If you've ever wondered what God thinks about disease and paralysis and blindness and deafness, watch as Jesus heals all who are brought to him. If you've ever doubted whether or not God loves you, you can listen to Jesus say, I love my own who are in the world and I will love them to the end. 
That's a definitive statement. If you've ever doubted whether uh, or not God loves you, this is what you preach to yourself. It's true. If you've ever questioned if God is a tyrant or an egomaniac, you look at Jesus on his knees washing the disciples' feet. If you've ever wondered what God is like in the depths of his heart, look closely at the mercy of Jesus. Look at his kindness, his authority, his power, his compassion, his joy, and his peace. And you look and you listen and you watch and you meditate on all that Jesus is, all that he says, all that he does. Whatever your name is this morning, I wish I could list you all off by name. Just insert your name. Listen wants to Jesus again say to you, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He says to you, Jeremy, if you've seen me, you've seen God. He says this to you this morning. In Jesus, we see and know God truly. Guys, that is such a comfort. That is so comforting. That is so clarifying. When you're in a place where your heart is troubled. But, but finally, we must believe that Jesus is the life if we're going to have a cure for our troubled hearts. You see this in verses 12 through 14. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I think we can often think of the concept of believing, even in Jesus or something, as if it's just something in our heads, okay? It's in my head, I, I believe it, but it's not really in my hands. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I mean? That's not what Jesus says, though. He says belief flows from your head and your heart into your hands and through your lips. That's what he's saying, it results in works. The works of Jesus. He says, for anyone who believes, anyone. So you don't have to be an apostle to do the works of Jesus. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be an elder or an author. You don't have to be uh, well-known or financially successful. It's no one gender to the exclusion of another. You don't, you don't have to be a certain age or a certain ethnicity. You only have to be a believer. Anyone who believes does Jesus' works, but he goes further and he says that we will do greater works. Greater works. See, the works that we do, we must see, are the same works of Jesus. Again, just look with me really quick. He says in verse 11, believe me that I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves, the works of Jesus that he did. And then it says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these you will do. It's the same works. Jesus says then that we will do greater works. So what does he really mean by that? Well, we at least know that Jesus is not saying to us, hey, uh, I raised the dead, but you're going to do something way cooler than that. You're going to raise like aliens or something, you know. Or he doesn't say like I fed 5,000 people, you know, with five loaves and a fish, but you're going to feed like 100,000 you know, with two loaves and a half of a fish. You know, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus means by greater works has way more to do about quantity over quality. That's what he's talking about here. When Jesus 
walked the earth, he inhabited one body, but now Jesus is leaving, and by his leaving, it's a good thing, because he's going to send the Spirit of God into the lives of millions of people who believe in him and who follow him, and they're going to be sent out all over the globe, imaging God, glorifying God, doing the works of Jesus, the same works that he did, proclaiming the good news of what he has done for them. And we could honestly spend, I could spend an entire sermon on just this one verse. There's honestly so much more that can be said about this. And, and really, uh, verses 12 through 14. But for our time this morning, I just want to point out how. This is the important thing, I think. How this life that Jesus offers to us is experienced. Because I want you to notice one thing about these three verses. Do you see who the emphasis is on in this passage? Do you notice it? If you do, you get a window into how Jesus is the life, or in other words, how you will experience true life. So who's the emphasis on? Well, it's actually not on us. Do you notice this? I think we often read that, we're like, I'm going to do greater works. You know, we begin to like think about all this kind of stuff, but the emphasis is not on us, because Jesus doesn't say, you know, quote, whoever believes in me will do the works that they've always wanted to do. He doesn't say, whatever you ask in your own name, this I will do that you will be glorified. Or if you ask anything in your own name, I'll do it for you. That's not at all what Jesus says. Jesus tells you who the emphasis is on, and he's inviting you into a life where the emphasis is not on you, but it's on him. We see that when Jesus starts talking about prayer, don't we? I mean, this is honestly a huge part of really all of this. It's prayers that are offered in Jesus' name. Prayers in his name are prayers that stand for the same things that Jesus' name stands for. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. We, we, tack it, we tack on, you know, at the end of our prayers, like in Jesus' name, amen. You know, we say that. That's good, right? It's kind of where, where we get this kind of stuff, right? That, but, 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 but that, you know, that's where we get the idea. But it's not like a magical phrase we say. It's not like you say stuff that you just want to have happen, and then you sprinkle magic fairy dust of Jesus' name over your prayers, and he's like, oh, okay, you said the magic words, okay? This is an invitation from Jesus. It's not magic. It's an invitation to pray what is in the heart of Jesus. Not just what's in your heart, it's you being drawn out of your life into the life of Jesus to pray what's in his heart. See, are are you seeing what Jesus is saying here? He is the life. He is the life. And he is inviting you this morning into an abundant eternal life in him here and now, like today, today. He's inviting you into this life. But life isn't found in your own self-promotion. It's not found in your own self-focus or, or self-glory, right? Which is exactly the lie that we're told in our current culture. It's exactly the lie. But Jesus is saying that life is found in freedom from yourself, not obsession with yourself. It's found in obsession with Jesus and his glory, not obsession with our own. It's praying in his name. It's doing his works, it's seeing God glorified, not ourself. I have this image that I'm going to put for you here on the screen. Um, it's an image uh, by an artist named Banksy, and I think it's called Mobile Lovers. Um, you may have seen it before. There's a really great dance couple named, uh, they're married, Keone and Mari, who did a dance to this. It's amazing. Um, uh, but I, I, I saw this image, and I thought this equated so well to what this is talking about here, what, what Jesus is inviting us into. Because Jesus often equates our relationship with God like a married relationship, okay? 
And, and a marriage relationship works really well if you kind of like lose your life in the other person and serving and loving the other person, okay? And, and, and this is what the Bible equates like our life to Jesus with. And I think this image depicts often our relationship with Jesus. It, it definitely can depict mine, okay? We have this general understanding that we love and we embrace Jesus, but our lives are recoiled sort of inside of ourselves. We're, we're elsewhere, you know, we're distracted, we're self-absorbed. We're, you know, we're tricking ourselves and thinking that we're really wrapped up in Jesus, but we're really not. Our heart's elsewhere, it's focused elsewhere, it's wrapped up in ourselves, but then eventually we look to Jesus in our life, and eventually uh, we say to him, I-, I thought you were the life, Jesus. You know, I thought you were the life, I'm not experiencing the life. And I think this is image is kind of like what we're doing. We're sitting there tricking ourselves, thinking we're wrapped up in his life. We're really still wrapped up in a different life. We're wrapped up, <coughs> excuse me, in our own life. And we eventually look to him and we say, I'm not experiencing this life. And Jesus is inviting you. He says to you, I'm inviting you into life, but it's not your life. It's my life. I'm inviting you into my life. It's his life. It's his glory. It's his name. It's his works. Do you see that? Jesus is saying, look to me, believe in me. And when we take our eyes off the distractions, off our self-absorption, we put the symbolic phones down, if you will, and our eyes get wrapped up in Christ, we actually start finding life, just like in a marriage. When you get outside of yourself and start living for the other, you know, your marriage begins to change, it begins to work. And you see, Jesus, guys, he, he was so wrapped up into his Father And that ended up wrapping him up into you. You see, the gospel is that Jesus gave his life so that we could start truly living life. It's grace, and it never stops being a life of grace. It just never does. And when you come to Jesus and you receive his grace, and you experience that, you didn't carve out your own path to God, but Jesus was the staircase. You didn't survive the treacherous terrain up the mountain. And when you see that God, Jesus has come and he's revealed the Father to you and he's also revealed where true life is found and it's not in yourself, it's in him. It's his death to self and, and drawing out from your own life into his life. You, you'll begin to live a completely different one. You'll begin to find a cure for your troubled heart. See, Jesus is the life. What a cure, guys, for the troubled soul. He takes you out of yourself and he invites you into a God-centered life. I just want to end by telling you this because this whole week as I was reading this, I kept thinking of this one person in my life. A year and a half ago, I met this um, Somali woman in the UK. And a couple of you uh, probably in here today that met her as well. You remember her well. Her name's Shania. And um, I just kept thinking of her story because it's just wrapped up in this passage that Jesus has. I mean, she's Somalian. And if you know anything about Somalia, talk about having a troubled life, you know. Um, and I can't, I don't have time to go into all that. But she's living in the UK, and um, she, she watches this video. It's sent to her inbox one night, and it's uh, of somebody beheading another person. It's like a, a video. And um, they're doing it in the name of Allah, which she's Muslim because she's Somali. And uh, she's just so disturbed by that. And she says, I can't worship Allah anymore. If this is what Allah is about, I want nothing to do with it. And so she gets really angry, turns off the computer, gets angry at God, goes to bed. And she, right before she goes to bed, she says, God, Allah, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. And in her dream that night, 
she says, there's this bright light outside of her house, and she walks out, and all these people are out there, and there's this bright light. And uh, she's like, it was so beautiful. It's like light I've never seen before. And so she wakes up from that dream, and she's like, oh, my gosh, Allah revealed himself. He's real. Uh, this is amazing. Allah is the true God. And so she lives her whole next day just so joyful, so happy. Allah is real, all this stuff. Goes to bed again. She falls asleep, and when she wakes, or she's in her dream, and she's sitting in her living room, and she's opening the Quran, and she's reading the Quran to her mother. Her mother's sitting next to her. who's a devout Muslim. And she's reading the Quran, but she keeps saying, the only words that kept flowing out of my mouth are, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And her mom's getting angrier and angrier and angrier, and her telling her to shut up. And she won't shut up. She says, I couldn't shut up. I don't know why. Her mom got up and left the room and slammed the door. And she said, as soon as the door slammed, the roof opened. And this man descended, lifted her into his arms, and carried her away. It's literally the image of this, this, this story where, where Jesus says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to take you. It's literally the image, okay? And uh, she takes him, this man takes her to this place, and she said it was beautiful. She goes, there were trees there, so beautiful, but like trees I could never describe for you that I've never seen before. Or there's flowers, but flowers like I've never seen before. I can't even describe them to you. And she's just telling us, all these things. And finally, she, she, she wakes up, and she's like, oh my gosh, I've never felt so much peace in my life, whatever. And she's like, whoever that was, man, I'm giving my life to that person. That was amazing. She goes and she Googles, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. She's never heard it before in her life. And she says, Jesus said that. And she literally just says, I got down right there, and I just said, Jesus, I'm yours. This is a Somali Muslim woman who's experienced so much trouble in her life, and trouble was just waiting around the corner again. Because people like her mom, who was the closest person to her in her entire life, her mother said to her over the phone when she found out she was a Christian, if I ever see you, I will kill you. And to this day, she's never seen her mother again. But I'm, and countless other things, okay? But I'm telling you, I have never seen so much joy and so much peace in a woman who is giving her life away. She's been drawn out of her own life in the life of Christ, and she's going out boldly into the world, doing the works of Jesus. She's experiencing so much life. My point to you is this. Jesus doesn't say to you this morning, if you believe, me, if you believe in me, your heart will never be troubled again. That's not what he says to you. He doesn't say that to you. Even Jesus' heart was troubled. But he says the cure for when your heart is troubled is not somewhere else. The cure for your troubled heart in the midst of uncertainty is him. That's what he says to you. He is the way. He's the only way. He is the truth and life, guys. True life is found in him. He is the cure for your soul. He is the cure for your heart. Join me and let's pray. Lord Jesus, my prayer for us this morning in this room is that uh, all the things, God, that we just get so wrapped up in that we think will cure us, that will fix whatever we think is wrong, I, I, think, I pray that those things would just sort of fade, that we'd see how they pale just in comparison to the infinite worth and like beauty that is found in you, Lord Jesus. 
God, would you just block out all the lies that we hear in our culture? That there's multiple ways or that we can't really know God or that life is found elsewhere. Lord, I pray that we'd see all those things just wrapped up so beautifully and gloriously in your life, Lord Jesus. And we'd, we'd come to you today and receive your life and truly believe in you deep within uh, just all that we are. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.